Travellers, and welcome to You Should Have Been There, episode 36, which actually could be retitled You Should Have Been Three. Anyway, I'm Simon Calder. And I'm Mick Webb. And I'm actually responsible for this new title because I was... uh trying to type you should have been there which by the way was voted the uh, best travel podcast title by the uh, well-known wanderlust magazine a couple of months ago who cares about the content when the title is world class indeed uh, anyway with a slip of the uh, right hand i managed to uh, type you should have been three which um, made us think that um, maybe there are um, travel uh, experiences when three uh, is not a crowd but actually a very handy uh, number to have and uh, I think Simon uh, that you have had one of those experiences I certainly have. Um, It was uh, 2014 and I was with my good friends, Graham, um, who I've known for a thousand years and his lovely partner, Gina, um, trying to climb Aconcagua, which, as you will know, is on the Argentinian side of the uh, border with Chile. It's the world's highest mountain outside the Himalayas and therefore it's it's quite popular with people trying to make the seven summits the highest points all around the globe in each continent however I um I've been speaking to Graham and Gina and I reminded them that the plan was never for there to be a I guess a montagne à trois oh that's right George was supposed to come with us we had a fourth person but he broke his leg um probably to try and get out of the uh, trip with us and it almost certainly would have been better but um george remained nursing his uh, leg in sheffield while i flew out to rendezvous with the other two in the argentinian city of mendoza um i reminded graham and gina that things started going wrong pretty much from the very start of the expedition it wasn't wasn't great was it gina when we arrived in the car park at the foot of the trail to the base camp and we couldn't actually work out which way to go and we had to ask for directions that that I don't know if your heart sank um I I know that you weren't leading I wasn't leading either I would like to just uh interject at this point that the leader it's always very good to get lost on the the first hour of an expedition um because uh, once the rest of the team that's the other two have got all over the um the anger and frustration and despair um the rest of the expedition can only be better if you don't expect much you won't be disappointed simon yes exactly but well, i know that's always been your motto about graham <laughs> certainly has <laughs> mine as well and then graham had a question for me when it comes to threesomes you ought to ask the um the odd one and in your in, in uh, this case the odd one is you simon um what's it like traveling with a couple who have a secret language it, it was um, absolutely great um, because although you are um, uh, romantically involved, if I may, um, you were not at all, at all exclusive. Um, and um, indeed, because I like you hugely as individuals, um, it was um, like being with two very good friends. And so therefore, um, the fact that you are um, more than more than just friends, if I may, uh, to each other, not to me. Um, that that was um, it, it was uh, just just um, great. And um, I was going to say a laugh a minute. That would be an exaggeration. A laugh a week, maybe. As the atmosphere rarefied as we got higher, so did the laughs. We 
we're at the top camp, uh, three of us in a tent designed for probably one person. As a result, the threesome all had to lie on their side, squashed into this single tent, um, and not much sleep was had. But we made it to the top and evidently back down safely again, and we're still on speaking, or at least Skyping terms. Um, Graham and Gina, though, say that it rather depends on circumstances whether a uh, menage a trois, in the travel sense, is going to work. But there was another occasion when we had a threesome. Gina and me were travelling in our small yacht, um, and uh, we invited another good friend to share our small space with us. But for some reason, it didn't work out quite so well. You remember? Yes, that was a lot more because it's a small 42 foot boat. It was like sharing a tent every day, uh, a very small space. So I think because we had a common goal and we're all going to climb the mountain together, we had lots of like literally lots of open space. So if anybody wanted to go off on their own um, and have a breather, then you could. So I think it works. If you have a common goal and it's an expedition, it's a lot better. A third person in a very small space, maybe not. Um, also worth saying that on Aconcagua, there is no shortage of other people to talk to and I dare say bitch to about your fellow uh, travellers. So um, it was uh, from all points of view, um, I was going to say a success, maybe not an unqualified one, but we're all alive. Well, I was leafing through um, my back catalogue of travel memories to see when it was that I actually went on journeys with two other people. And I realised I must have uh, led quite a sheltered life because generally that hasn't been the case. Although there were a couple of years uh, when I was in my mid-twenties, I suppose, when I went on quite long travel journeys in quite unreliable cars through France. Um, first of all, with Bob and Avril, who were very good friends of mine, who were a couple. And then um, and then the next That's year, same with Bob. Bob and Steph. Uh, it's the same Bob, absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, this was, in fact, Bob and Steph and Mick. And uh, Mick and Steph were a couple. Um, I remember that... Um, the three part of it made it possible to have more of a laugh and I think a possibly more varied uh, selection of um, cassettes to play. Uh, but uh, but other than that, um, it seemed also a very useful way of uh, splitting the petrol costs, which at the time seemed absolutely astronomical. And of course, the fact that you had to drive through France was because the airfares were even more astronomical and the rail fares and so therefore it was a kind of a forced threesome for economic purposes uh <laughs> my main experience was a trip all the way back in 1976 which i have repeated and indeed um tim and roy with whom i traveled also repeated it and all i would observe is that the same social dynamics seemed to play out which was i must say uh the the two of them thought that my um my decisions my choices my my uh, ideas were were a little bit a little bit wayward compared with theirs, but um, we're still speaking too. That's very good. Voyage à trois revisited. Yes, I think it'll work as a film. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure as a film, but um, I think that you and Bob and Steph should um, rerun your road trip. I'd watch. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, remind you of uh, a very brief. Um, Voyage à trois, um, although I suppose it should be a viaje à tres because it 
started in France and then went into Spain when we were walking in the Pyrenees. And we decided, I think really very unwisely, uh, uh, when I look back on it, to uh, walk <laughs> the first stage of the uh, Camino de Santiago, the famous pilgrim route to uh, Santiago. And it was unwise because we decided to uh, to do this trek from Saint Jean Pied de Port to uh, Ronces Valles on the uh, on the other side of the border, following a uh, quite spectacular late snowfall. Now this involved going over three high passes, les ports du Cise. And I'm going to ask you a travel mm. quiz question: Can you put a name to the uh, the travel guide writer? who uh, described this stage of the uh, Camino de Santiago in the following terms. In the Basque country, the Way of St. James crosses a remarkable mountain called the Port de Cise. To surmount it, you have eight miles to climb and the same number again to descend. In fact, this mountain is so high that those who have made the ascent can touch the sky with their hands. Crikey, uh, good question. I'm going to... Imagine that it was a 19th century adventurer. Um, and I'm going to cite Hilaire Belloc, who has done an awful lot of uh, meandering in the mountains. And um, I, I guess he would he, he would write with such a flourish. Well, if I was Jeremy Paxman, I'd probably laugh disdainfully because actually um, it was a 12th century travel writer, oh. almost certainly the first to write any kind of guide to the Camino de Santiago. And he was called Emery Picot, and uh, he was a monk from um, Poitiers. Anyway, this is what happened to us. Um, and I know it's true because it's documented in our um, brilliant book, uh, <laughs> Backpacks. back. I shouldn't laugh. Backpacks, boots and baguettes, which I think might still be available online. Anyway, this is how we became involved in a voyage à trois. Um, we were walking up the fairly easy part of the first of the uh, mountain passes when we met um, a lost pilgrim. We knew he was a pilgrim because he had a uh, absolutely huge um, pack on his back and was holding a, uh, a sort of stout staff. Um, and uh, he was uh, a Spaniard. He was Felix and he was from Urense or Orense in Galicia, which meant that for him, the pilgrimage would be a bit like a long walk home. <laughs> and anyway, for the next six hours, we were fellow pilgrims on the road to Ronces Valles. And now this is what it says here on page 73 of our book. As I speak Spanish and Simon doesn't, I tended to walk next to Felix who didn't seem to speak any English. Being on the loquacious side myself, I found it odd to be walking alongside a total stranger who didn't want or feel the need to talk. I'd rather hope to discover, for instance, whether there was any religious uh, reason for him undertaking the journey. But all I did find out was that, like me, he had two children and that he enjoyed doing the occasional 50-kilometre trek which was a good job, as this one would be around 500 kilometres. <laughs> the road continued to climb, and the mist had got thicker. From time to time, you'd spot a vague shape, which would only gradually turn into a horse or a tree. Round about lunchtime, an authentic miracle occurred, and this after only a couple of hours as pilgrims. A building loomed up on the right-hand side, 
and we'd almost walk past it before we realised that it was a refuge. The Refuge Auberge Horizon was brand new and it had only been open for three days. We draped our very damp waterproofs on hooks, specially placed next to the roaring fire, ordered drinks, beer for Felix, coffee for the more wimpish members of the party, and chatted to the proud proprietor. For many years, Jean-Jacques Echandy had run a bicycle shop in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, which he'd sold in order to realise his lifetime dream of setting up a hostel on the pilgrim's route. Meanwhile, without any preliminary comment, Felix had produced a large Spanish roll filled with ham and cheese from his pack, cut it expertly into three pieces and handed two of them to Simon and myself. We had another round of beer and coffees to put off the evil moment of leaving the warm, welcoming refuge. Hanging over us was the threat of the snow up ahead, but no one else at the refuge seemed to know how deep it was or whether we'd be able to find our way through it. Okay, end of part one. What do you reckon so far? <laughs> well, look, um, actually, there's a lot to be said for, for three people trying a tricky mountain at a, 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 an unwise time of year, because it, regardless of everything else, if one of us had become injured, then, of course, you would have the, uh, I was going to say, luxury of somebody staying with the victim while the other goes for help, although where that would come from, I'm not entirely clear. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, uh, I think there's another couple of points, actually, which is um, if you were tracking very, very tricky terrain, I mean, like like yours on the mountain of Aconcagua, uh, surely you need all kinds of specialist gear, which is actually quite heavy and can actually be uh, shared out amongst three people. So, uh, you know, one or two people don't have to carry everything or in the case of <laughs> me and you traveling you don't have to carry everything well i i'm, I'm sure that works in theory but um, again once again in practice uh may, maybe i'm just um too too eager to help and uh other people i'm going to include you in this are too eager to take advantage of that uh unwise generosity uh, but but look supposing supposing we had done the whole 500 kilometers 300 miles together do you think it would have made a good threesome in any sense well i suppose it might have actually hinged for me on whether Felix became any more forthcoming um, because he really was uh, really extremely um, monosyllabic uh, and it wasn't because I didn't speak Spanish. Um, and there was a point actually I remember when his phone rang and I, I imagined it was his his wife or partner ringing up from home uh, and he was as monosyllabic with her <laughs> as he was with me. He said something like, uh, yes, I'm up a mountain. No, I'm not on my own. I'm with two French blokes, <laughs> which sort of <laughs> made me wonder whether he really cared a great deal about uh, whether he was in company or not. But I'm going to read another bit a bit uh, a, a bit um, uh, later on, which shows actually what a useful person he was to have on a uh, on certainly on a, the snowy stretch of a, a voyage à toi. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, there haven't been very many um, recorded, written, filmed uh, stories about three people uh, doing a good journey. I mean, there's a famous book, which, of course, you will have heard of and may even have read Three Men in a Boat. 
I have, and what a what a fantastic uh, tale it is, um, Jerome K. Jerome. What a memorable name! Yeah, that's right. And uh, I actually, uh, it, the title really isn't Three Men in a Boat. It's Three Men in a Boat to say nothing of the dog, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I remember was called Mont. Montmorency <laughs> and it sort of gives away the fact that really the main purpose of this and indeed of the threesome as it were was to um, write um, comic observations about people and occasionally about the landscape uh, in this case the uh, River Thames which they were attempting completely incompetently to row along. He wrote another book actually which uh, wasn't quite as successful and has pretty well been forgotten I think which is uh, Three Men on the Bummel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had to yes, look that up. On, I then. have no idea what that means, and it sounds very odd, doesn't it? Um, uh, well, bum, bummel or bummel is a German term, I gather, which means just to um, meander along in a vague way, to ramble, actually, I think would yeah. be a fair way of putting it. So, And this is indeed about the same three characters, which is Jerome, uh, a bloke called George, and another one who is known by his surname, Harris, um, uh, going um, wandering about in the Black Forest. Uh, and uh, uh, it's really about their um, characters. So, you know, one of them is, um, for example, one of them is very critical of his homeland and is always saying how much better things are done in Germany, which is a quite easy thing to say, whereas the other other one <laughs> reacts with some anger to um, any criticism of his homeland, particularly um, with regard to Germany. And I, I imagine some of these sentiments have only been exaggerated since these books were written, which was uh, so, sort of beginning of the 20th century, so um, uh, before the uh, the two wars. The Three Men on the Bummel is actually quite good fun to read because I did flick through it and it does have quite a number of prescient things to say um, uh, if you uh, bear in mind what happened uh, after after their journey. But I won't spoil it because I can't remember yes. what they were. <laughs> the, the, I, I'm actually already tempted to try to stage some kind of reprise um, because the Black Forest, of course, one of the few countries we can actually go to, Germany at the moment. Um, and I, I think you and I and a third person uh, should go on the bummel if that's not <laughs> a, a risque term these days. Um, who, who should we? Who should we bring? Ah, well, this is a very good point. Who should we invite? Um, I, I would have to say probably, probably female, because um, the, I, I, I think. An extra male would simply add to the uh, disarray, um, and so well, I, who who could it be? Somebody sensible, somebody strong, obviously, because uh, we need them to carry lots of stuff. Um, somebody speaking German, oh, well, Angela Merkel. It has to be. I think that's absolutely fine. We obviously couldn't invite either of our lovely partners because um, uh, one would be jealous of the other, i.e. the one who had gone on this ludicrous expedition would be <laughs> very envious of the one who'd uh, uh, managed to escape. On the bummer with Angela, I'd watch. Well, let's get it in the diary for, uh, what do you think, 2025? I, I think that sounds um, a very good idea. I, I shall begin my approach to the German government in Berlin immediately.
And one of the things we should do in order to get there, um, climate change notwithstanding, is to fly on vueling um, airlines, uh, if indeed they have flights to, uh, is it southwestern uh, Germany? Stuttgart, I, I'm sure there's some way of getting there, yeah. Stuttgart, Main, uh, or Baden-Baden, so good <laughs> they named it um, twice. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> The reason I've mentioned Vueling is not because I'm being paid to do so, but um, they made what I think could be considered a very suggestive, if not blatant, um, piece of uh, advertising uh, a couple of years ago. Vueling quería incrementar las ventas el día de San Valentín, una fecha crucial en la que normalmente. They launched a promotional campaign uh, around uh, Valentine's Day, and the idea was to, uh, at a time when Quite a lot of people, for very obvious reasons, travelled in pairs. Um, but of course, their planes mostly had uh, seats arranged in threes to try and fill the third seat. And they claim that uh, this was so successful uh, that they had 5,000 extra uh, bookings in 24 hours. And this created a new Spanish saying. In San Valentín. Tres no son multitud, son trio, which means threes, not a crowd. It's a threesome. Oh, my goodness me. Uh, well, look, I, I, that's hilarious, um, as is the fact that a German airline is going in exactly the opposite direction. If we were going to go uh, from Heathrow um, on the Bummel with Angela, uh, we would fly to Stuttgart probably with Eurowings, and they are now selling the opportunity for couples to ensure the middle seat remains empty. So you actually block it to avoid anybody turning up and um, becoming a crowd. Or indeed um, giving you coronavirus. Yes. Uh, well, that that remains to be scientifically proven, but uh, plenty of discussion around that. I think it's now time to reach the denouement <laughs> of our uh, walk uh, a trois uh, across the Port du Cis on the Camino de Santiago. Go on then. We found traces of boot prints in the snow, which showed at least that someone else had been this way. At first, this was very encouraging, but after a while, doubt set in. What if the owner of the boots was completely lost and was leading us towards an unexpected ravine? Were we trudging and slipping to our doom? It was only later that we discovered that in the winter of 2002, that was a couple of years before, two lone pilgrims who'd been following this route had died after being caught in blizzards. Our trail took us uphill for another half hour to the highest pass of all, La Collada de Le Poider, which is over 1,400 metres high. The snow was at its deepest here and a sudden vicious wind got up. It was the only place where we needed to call on the democratic process to decide on the route, as the signposting was ambiguous, to say the least. I lost. I must say, I'm all in favour of, of three people um, coming to a majority decision in such cases, because otherwise, well, their, their madness lies. And um, it was high. I mean, getting on for 5,000 feet above sea level in snow, which sometimes felt about that deep. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I lost on this occasion two against one and um, I accepted defeat graciously. Well, that's how I remember it. And uh, <laughs> in any case, the two routes rejoined after a few minutes. So there was no chance of an I told you so outcome. 
And then from this pass, it's downhill all the way to Rontes Valles through a real beech forest with tall, handsome trees. Skis would have been an advantage in the conditions, but I found that a stout branch was nearly as helpful. You could leap down the hillside and use a combination of the snow and the stick to slow you down and make sharp turns. The mist began to disappear, as did the snow. In the space vacated, clumps of bluebells appeared and very pretty pyramidal white flowers, which I think were a kind of saxifrage. Felix increased the pace even more and we were almost trotting when the sound of traffic began to intrude and we came out of the forest to find ourselves right behind the vast grey stone complex of religious buildings that is Rontes Valles. It was half past two and we'd done the whole journey in a very fast time of six hours though with full packs and without our doughty pacemaker I suspect it would have taken us a couple more. And that's the great thing, Mick. I'm going to actually remind you that we managed to make our way, as we've discussed uh, in a previous episode, across the border from Colombia into Panama entirely because we had a young, fit, strong guide who was leading us. Um, I think if the two of us had been left to our own devices, we'd still be there left to our own devices. And in which case, of course, uh, we wouldn't be able to bring you this podcast or indeed the next one. And we're taking a week's pause um, while uh, we both indulge in our own bits of travelling, which we will tell you all about in a couple of weeks' time. And who knows, we may actually be joined by a third person to celebrate the joys of uh, travel à toi. And so until our next podcast from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.